Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. It is with these words that the immortal and fair Lady Galadriel the real Lady Galadriel, uh, opens Peter Jackson's epic retelling of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It is these lines that open the story, beginning with the prologue, that then brings the audience to the present situation. Like all good prologues, the Fellowship of the Rings prologue briefly informs the audience of the history of the situation spanning thousands of years prior to the immediate story's events and gives clarity about the purpose and direction of the adventure to come. And if you know the book of Exodus, if you know the story of Exodus, you know that it's a grand story. It is a collision of epic proportions. It's the story of epic plagues and of miraculous deliverance and of hard-hearted pharaohs and splitting seas. There is much adventure to come. However, all good stories need a setting. They need a prologue in order that we might fully grasp the the significance of that epic to come. And as Pastor Greg so uh, faithfully began our series last week on Exodus, with Exodus 1, 1 through 7, we were given the opening stanzas of this very prologue. The opening paragraph of Exodus serves as a hinge, a hinge that connects the history of God's people that were in Genesis here now to the people wandering in the desert. That opening paragraph sets us up well for the epic to come, showing us, as Greg did last week, that the God of the Israelites, our God, is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his purposes and to his promise to have for himself a people to dwell with him forever. And we saw last week that God has done that in preserving and prospering the Israelites in the foreign land of Egypt. However... The prologue is not complete. The setting has not yet been fully explained. Like Galadriel said, the world of Exodus 1, 1 through 7, is changed. And much that is that was is now lost, for none now live who remember it. There is a gathering storm over the multiplying people of God. Before we meet the human hero in our epic, we must comprehend the gravity of of the situation that necessitates a hero, a salvation, an exodus. So, out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand if you're able and hear me? I'm going to actually read all of chapter one to help us ramp up into our text this morning. So, this is God's holy and authoritative word, Exodus chapter one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, 
and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of works in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to, his, to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us such a word. Would you open our eyes now to behold the wondrous things that you have for us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. After reading the first paragraph of Exodus, one is left with the feeling that all is well with the Israelites. They survived the great famine in Genesis, thanks to Joseph, and found favor in the home of the land of Egypt. The covenantal language of being fruitful and multiplying and filling and increasing in number is deployed here to show that all seems to be well. They are safe in the protection of Egypt, placed there by the very providence of God in the famine and are favored by the king of Egypt, because of the providence of God in Joseph's suffering. And what the brothers had intended for evil, God intended for their good. So, all is well. However, the opening word of our text today, verse 8, changes everything. Now, with that single, simple word, Moses signals to the reader the end of the era of prosperity, of blessing, and of favor was then... And what's about to be described is now. Now the world is changed. And Moses seeks his readers to understand how it has changed. But despite all the changing, there is always and forever one who stands over the chaos. Who stands over the storm of the battle that's about to ensue. And it is the unchanging God who is faithful. 
So here is what I believe Moses means to communicate to us in Exodus 1, 8 through 22. Even under dire enemy persecution, the Lord will protect and prosper those who fear him. Even under dire enemy persecution, the Lord will protect and prosper those who fear him. So, as we walk through this gathering storm and as we close out the prologue to this epic tale, we will see how the final pieces of the board are set. And as we survey that board, we will see that there is a new king on the scene. He is a king that has been deceived, and ultimately there is a king over all, standing over all, eager to bless all who fear him. So, first, the new king. This is chapter 1, 8 through 14. As said before, what separates this section from the first paragraph of the book is that all-important word, now. Look again at verse 8 with me. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We're presented with our antagonist, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And it is the introduction of a new character that ushers in the changed situation. One uh, commentator describes it this way. With these ominous words, Israel's sojourn among the Egyptians turned from prosperity to persecution. What had once seemed like a promising place to grow into a godly nation became a house of bondage, a wasteland of back-breaking torment. The situation had changed. A new dynasty had come to power. It was in with the new regime and out with the old. And when it comes to power politics, it's all about who you know. And it's by the providence of God that we gather this morning to read of regime and dynasty change the very day before the Queen of England's state funeral. Ten days ago, the ancient cry, the queen is dead, God save the queen, rang out. And with those words, the situation in English, England changed. Seventy years of the reign of queen, uh, queen Elizabeth II is over. There is now a new king and Questions remain. In what way will King Charles III reign? Will he rule like his mother, the late queen, a woman who was devoted to her duty and her faith? Listen to, how, listen to the oath that the queen took in 1953 at her coronation. The Archbishop of Canterbury asks Her Majesty this, Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will Charles take that oath? Those are the questions that are raised when there is a change in the sovereign. And Moses makes it clear here that this change in Exodus is dramatic. If power politics is all about who you know, then this pharaoh did not know Joseph, nor the role he played in saving the nation of Egypt during that great famine. All this Pharaoh knew was that there was this people of Israel, multiplying, increasing greatly, and growing exceedingly in strength. Verse 7, so much so that the land was filled with them. It's one thing when a small family of 70 people are tucked away in the Nile, or the uh, Goshen in the Nile Delta, but now they're numerous. To Pharaoh, this growing nation within his nation had become, quote, too many and too mighty. 
something had to be done. And notice how Pharaoh communicates the problem to the nation of Egypt. He addresses his people, verse 9, and declares the problem using all first-person plural pronouns. Notice, they are too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them. They will join our enemies. Pharaoh needs buy-in from the people to do what he plans to do. And it's clear that the motivation for this subjugation is just simple fear. And isn't that the story of human history? The quick and perceived solution to fear is control. And the solution is control because the very thing we actually fear is the unknown and the uncontrolled. How often have we experienced unease in our present circumstances and then looked into the future, not sure what will happen next? The stock market takes a dive and you lose thousands and thousands overnight. Your boss comes in and informs you that you have to be laid off. Or you receive a diagnosis and you're unsure what will happen next. It is the very lack of control that causes anxiety and fear to take root in our hearts. See, Pharaoh fears what the Hebrews will do if war breaks out. He doesn't know what will happen. He fears what could happen. So it's time to take control. And control he takes. As you read verse 11 through 14, we find Moses, the author, repeating himself over and over again to emphasize the oppression that was placed on the Hebrews. Seven different words and phrases are used to describe the, the subjugation of Israelites into slavery. Words like afflict, oppressed, ruthless, work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service. The picture is clear. This is brutal and horrible slavery. But where did this come from? Can such atrocities really happen at the whim of a madman in power? Well, yes and no. There are bigger realities at play, ancient, cosmic realities. As we saw last week and repeated here in our passage today, the language used throughout of this chapter points us back all the way to the Garden of Eden. There, God gave his blessing to Adam and Eve, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. It's at the beginning, in the garden, that the Lord walked and talked with his people in the cool of the day. But, if you know the story, enter the serpent. And just like in our story, the picture of blessing is interrupted by the introduction of a villain. The way in which Moses described Pharaoh and, here, and his actions here in Exodus 1 makes clear that Pharaoh is not just some paranoid tyrant, but in fact despises and, re and resents the God of the people Israel represents. Again, Greg showed us last week, God is faithful, and he's faithful to his people, his plan and his promise. But notice, it is those very things Pharaoh attacks. He resents God's people in seeing them as a threat. He resents God's promise in that the stated reason for dealing with them so shrewdly is, verse 10, lest they multiply. And he resents God's plan by fearing that they might, verse 10 again, escape from the land. So, what is happening here is not just atrocious human rights violations, but it is open warfare declared on God himself. 
And in Genesis 3, after the fall, God speaks first to the serpent and curses him, saying, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. This enmity placed there by God himself is between the offspring, the the seed, the line of the woman, and the offspring, the seed, the line of the serpent, that ancient dragon. Open war is being waged by the serpent against God's people because he knows that there is a coming snake crusher who will bring about his demise. The serpent, using Pharaoh as a puppet, enslaves the people of God. Enslavement is the ultimate form of control because it views the enslaved property as property claimed by the owner. That's his goal, to take mastery over God and his people. And that's the goal of sin, to usurp God and his throne. And as the Israelites experience this oppressive enslavement, they are prone to forget God just as quickly as the new Pharaoh forgot Joseph. Suffering has a way of narrowing our focus on life, doesn't it? Philip Ryken writes, it is suffering that inserts the question marks into the story of our lives. That's right. Suffering is like a storm at sea, battering our boats, threatening to capsize our faith, tempting us to ask the question, where is God? And doesn't he care? It's impossible to get your bearings from the stars when you're surrounded by battering waves and clouds obscuring your view. It's disorienting. And that had the same effect on the Israelites. Where is God? Has he forgotten his promises? Is he actually an unfaithful God? And doesn't he care? So this state-sponsored oppression has cosmic dimensions. But even in the midst of this tremendous suffering, there is hope. Remember, Pharaoh, the puppet of the serpent himself, has the expressed goal of stopping the multiplication of the Israelites. But, verse 12, gives us a surprising result. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. This is so like God. Just as he dealt with the serpent in Genesis 3, just as he dealt with the brothers of Joseph in Genesis 50, God causes the very means intended for the destruction of his people to become the means of blessing. The harder they were oppressed, the more the people were multiplied. And the Egyptians' fear turns to dread. God has not lost control. He is the author of this story. No matter the suffering, the oppression, the evil intentions of men and the devil, all things must work out for the good of those who love God. In fact, we know God is ultimately in control of this story because of the promise he made to Abram hundreds of years earlier. Genesis 15, look at this. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. That's a kind way to say it. Servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But 
I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Notice, the affliction brought on to Abram's offspring not only didn't surprise God, but it has an end date. It's a set amount of time. No evil will go unpunished because our God is a God of justice. And that evil nation will know that he is the Lord when he comes to save his people. Charles Spurgeon commenting on the uh, the preserving faithfulness of God in suffering. He says this, In all probability, if Israel had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they began to adopt the superstitions and the idolatries and the iniquities of Egypt, and these things clung to them in after years, to such a terrible extent that we can easily imagine that their heart must have turned aside very much towards the sins of Egypt. Yet, all the while, God was resolved to bring them out of that evil connection. They must be a separated people. They could not be Egyptians, nor live permanently like Egyptians, for Jehovah had chosen, for, chosen them for himself, and he meant to make an abiding difference between Israel and Egypt. And today, we face a, a similar threat. The church must remember at all times that we are not of this world, but belong to God. And the suffering of the Israelites, and oftentimes the suffering of the church in hostile environments, is the means that galvanizes the people of God. It is God who preserves us and keeps us and holds us fast. Throughout this epic, Moses' desire that the Israelites wandering through the desert would open up their lens to see beyond their circumstances to the God who has not abandoned them. He is working throughout that storm, and the same is true for us. One glance at the history of the church, and it will tell you that it is in the crucible of persecution and hostility that produce the greatest gospel fruit. So, as we live today in a hostile culture, a culture eager to see God mocked and the very nature of his creation upended, take heart that this is heat that can produce much gospel fruit. So, Pharaoh's work camp has failed to produce the desired result. Something else must be done. We turn to scene two. Number two, the deceived king, verse 15 through 19. Pharaoh's work camp program is escalated to death camps via infanticide. If brutal and harsh and bitter work is not able to slow down their fruitfulness, then he must destroy the fruit itself. So Pharaoh calls before him two Hebrew midwives and gives them a very clear command. When a Hebrew woman is about to give birth to a boy, they must kill him. And it is with this declaration, Pharaoh makes himself not just an enemy of God, but an enemy of life itself. He values the Israelites so little that he finds no misgivings about murdering the innocent children. Now, why murder just the males? Two reasons. One, boys become men, and men become warriors. And if Pharaoh's main fear is that the Hebrews would become a military threat, he must stop them from growing militarily. Makes sense. But there's a second reason. 
By killing the boys and letting the girls live, he forces those girls, when they grow, to marry Egyptian men. Thus, the bloodlines are mixed, and the Hebrews become Egyptians themselves. He will force the Egyptianization of the Hebrews. This is an ancient form of genocide. One that was, the same method was used by the Assyrians on the conquered nation of Israel before Judah's exile, producing a mixed race of Assyrians and Jewish people, named after the former capital of that nation, Samaria, the despised Samaritans. Once again, the serpent is at work. His desire to own God's people has not worked, so he progresses to outright destruction and the mixing of the two offsprings. How can the seed of the woman crush the head of the serpent if the seed of the woman has become the seed of the serpent? If suffering won't break their backs, he will force them to become Egyptians. He really is a crafty serpent. But these two women are not like Pharaoh. Their suffering has not given way to hopelessness. To stand before Pharaoh, these simple, humble women are standing before what society believed was God himself. Pharaoh was seen as semi-divine, the embodiment of all the beings of the gods on earth. To disobey the orders of this one was to disobey the gods themselves. Once again, fear is the tactic of choice. So for them to push back against that much societal, governmental pressure would require something, fearing something even greater. And verse 17 gives us the answer. Chapter 117. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. T. Desmond Alexander comments on this passage by saying, by highlighting their fear of God, the narrator indicates that their disobedience to Pharaoh is prompted by much more than a humanitarian concern for the baby boys. Their civil disobedience arises out of a commitment to God and a desire to see his creation plan fulfilled. What we see from these women is an act of what is commonly called civil disobedience. And we live in a cultural moment where that might resonate with us. It seems like a live question today. Where is the line <laughs> and when do I fire up my civil disobedience against an evil government? And we ask those questions for good reason. It seems every day our ruling authorities seem to take more and more and more ground against our Christian convictions. That's undeniable and unavoidable. However, before we get too far down the road of pointing at this passage to justify any and all civil disobedience, we must pause. I'm reminded of, of when Pastor Ryan uh, preached on Romans 13 last May, recalling that for Paul, Christian duty requires obedience. And according to Romans 13, God has placed government authorities over us, and our inclination must first be obedience. However, when the thing mandated directly contradicts the expressed will of God, we are to obey God rather than man. So, it's obedience both times. The Lord's providence had brought the Israelites to the nation of Egypt. And it was the Lord who prospered and blessed them there. And it was the Lord who placed Pharaoh on his throne. All authority is derived authority. And Pharaoh's is no exception. Our authorities are, is, is no exception. So by ignoring the command of Pharaoh, the Hebrew midwives were obeying. They were just obeying the one who outranked Pharaoh. 
and to whom their ultimate allegiance belonged. We must always obey God. As Peter puts it in Acts 5, 29, after being commanded by the chief priests and rulers to stop teaching in the name of Christ, they say, we must obey God rather than men. It didn't take long for Pharaoh to realize his plan wasn't working. Considering how the Lord works and has worked thus far, there was likely a male baby boom that caught the attention of Pharaoh. So he hauls those same midwives up in front of him and demands they answer for themselves. Notice their response. They didn't outright claim something contrary to the fact, but instead claimed that the reason that all these boys have been successfully born is because the Hebrew women are strong and vigorous, unlike those Egyptian women. Much could be said, and plenty has been said, about the ethics at play in this scene. Were the midwives, were the midwives right in deceiving the king? Isn't God a God of truth? We may sympathize with their actions, but haven't they lied? Haven't they borne false witness against their neighbor? And Proverbs 12, 22 does say the Lord detests lying lips. All these are fair questions. So how do we reconcile that briefly? Certainly there is a difference between deceiving someone who neither expects nor deserves the truth and someone who does. In almost all of our daily interactions, the people we talk to expect and deserve the truth. My wife, my boss, my friends expect and deserve the truth. However, think of like in sports. We, we often deceive our opponents. Maybe we run a trick play or pump fake and then you drive to the hoop, right? Is that a moral dilemma? <laughs> no, of course not. In sports, your opponent doesn't expect you to tell the truth all the time. They're expecting you to try and throw them off. And in justified war, evil enemies do not deserve the truth. They may use the truth to harm or kill innocent people. And what we find in this story is that Pharaoh has declared war on the God of truth and of his people. The real deception has already taken place in the heart of Pharaoh. He's so deceived by sin that he does not deserve the truth with which he could continue his wickedness. All that said, Moses' central aim in the story is not for us to focus on the ethical parsing of the actions of the Hebrew midwives, but to see the bigger picture. Despite his best efforts, these Hebrew midwives play Pharaoh as a fool. Even their explanation to Pharaoh is a backhanded result, or backhanded insult. The Hebrew women are just so much stronger than the women of Egypt, we just can't make it in time. Once again, Pharaoh's plans are thwarted. The deceiving serpent in the garden is repaid here by two Hebrew midwives. The tables continue to turn. And these two heroic women, they feared God over any man and thus acted accordingly. And what often happens in stories, we can judge the actions of a character by what happens to them. And what, we see, what do we see as a result of their actions? They are blessed by the true king, the high king. Number three, the king of kings. In verse 20, we have the conclusion of the matter. Despite the suffering of the people in slavery, despite the tyrannical and murderous commands of a pharaoh, the two midwives received divine blessing from the king overall. Look, look at verse 20. While Pharaoh had dealt harshly with the Hebrews, the Lord dealt well with these two women. Because of their faithfulness and their fear of the Lord, they are fruitful. 
It's unclear whether or not only barren women served as midwives, but the language of them receiving families suggests that before this whole ordeal, these women had no families. They spent day after day delivering child after child to happy mother to happy mother with no family of their own. But then when they were called upon to be faithful, they showed themselves worthy. And the Lord honors them with families of their own. The fruit of their faith gives way to fruit of their wombs. And already in just one chapter in Exodus, we see a pattern emerging. That when all seems lost, when the circumstances feel as though they could not be any grimmer, the Lord is faithful to bless his people, those who fear him. Try as he might, Pharaoh fails in suppressing the blossoming people of God. And the reason he couldn't get his arms around the situation is that his worst fears are true. He is not in control. He is not all-powerful. He is not God. The serpent's feeble attempts to replace God fail in utter reversal. King David probably had many situations in his mind when he wrote Psalm 2, but it applies well here in our story. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst, our, burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish on the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, who fear him. See, what Joseph knew, what the Hebrew midwives knew, what Israel will come to know very clearly is that our God sits enthroned above all. He is the king, and he is to be feared above all else. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. The suffering intended to destroy the people leads ultimately to their deliverance. Once again, what man intends for evil, God intends for our good. This reality, the reality of the sovereign rule and reign of God, is the ballast for our boat in the storms of suffering and persecution. And in case we are tempted to sit and think, well, yeah, that's all well and good for the Israelites and for those midwives, but how do I know that that God, that sovereign king, cares a lick about me and my present circumstances? May I remind you that this God, this transcendent, almighty, incomprehensible God became one of us. In Christ Jesus, we who were once like the Egyptians, like Pharaoh himself, belonging to a hostile nation, have been brought near. Through Christ's death, he suffered in our stead. And through Christ's resurrection, he rose victorious over death itself. This head of the snake is truly crushed. And as Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and you, in the original language, it's just emphatic. It's like he's looking at us in the eye and says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The ruler of this world is disarmed. The king, the pharaoh, deceived, disarmed. There is a king who rules over all. All must be well because Christ has secured us. It is he who protects us and prospers us even in our suffering. Even if our suffering includes dire persecution and opposition, Christ reigns over all. All things must work together for my good. So, dear Christian, when all seems lost, hope in the victorious Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are looking to you for our help in times of trouble. We lift our eyes. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of all things. And because you have made all things, you sit enthroned above it all. Even in our lives, in the, in the storm, and the chaos of our lives, God, you speak to us. Like to the disciples in the boat asking Jesus, Why, don't you care what happens to us? You speak to our storm and say, be still. No, I am God. So we're grateful to serve a king like that. A king who is good. A king who rules over all. So would you give us faith, we ask, as we turn to that king. Would you give us grace to trust in you each day, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.